What's up, everyone, and welcome to the latest episode here at RNFM Radio. You've got some questions, and we and our guest today has some answers. The tone of the subject matter for today's show is is definitely something that is hard to talk about for many. Uh, we get into that, but I, I just I love the tone of it. I really do. I think it's a great spin, and so I can't wait to introduce you to our guest today. However, let me first thank you for continuing to head over to iTunes under the podcast section. Ratings and reviews are awesome. Thank you, thank you, thank you so much. And we'll be reading more of those later on. But what I also wanted to do is thank you all so much because we are tipping. This is episode 199. We're li- we're off to a tipping. And, and now, don't you tip. And if you fall over, please be careful. But keep the earbuds in because today's show is going to be great. However, the SpeakPipe app over at rnfmradio.com under the contact us section over there on the far right uh, on the tabs menu there. And you can leave us a voice message for episode 200, which will launch that nurse's week. So it's actually going to come out early. Episode 200 is going to come out early. So it will be out the Friday that you're likely listening to this show right now. So right before um, whatever Friday that is. What day is that? That's May 6th. So episode 200 is going to at least launch, we hope, May 6th. So stay tuned for that. And then we also, we think we've got a really cool bonus episode right there in Nurses Week to kick us off. So anyway, let's get into today, to today's show. Keith will introduce the guest. And again, such a great tone for today and just a great spin on things. You which, is incredible, which is incredible. Which is incredible. It is incredible. 199. That's, I just can't believe it. Yeah. And the two of us are here today, but not without someone, actually a special guest. And it's not Elizabeth. Elizabeth, unfortunately, had some things that she had happening that she couldn't be here today. So we do miss her. We know she's here in spirit. But we do have someone else on the mic. We absolutely do. We desperately miss Elizabeth, but I think we're going to hold our own with our incredible guest. And our guest happens to be Margaret Overton. She's the author of the memoir, Good in, Good in a Crisis, published by Bloomsbury in 2012. And the new book, Hope for a Cool Pillow, published by Outpost 19 this year. She's also a physician and a mother of two. Margaret's an anesthesiologist who spent 30 years working at a level one trauma center She states that she wrote Hope for a Cool Pillow because she hopes to see change in end-of-life care in the United States, change that's supported by the general public and because she's witnessed firsthand how hard it is for many people to have this conversation about end-of-life with their loved ones and also the devastating consequences when they don't. Margaret holds an MFA in writing from the School of the Art Institute of Chicago, which is very apparent when you read her amazing book. And we're super lucky to welcome her to RNFM Radio. So, Margaret Overton, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I appreciate it, and I'm very happy to be here. Oh, it's it's our honor to have you. And like I was telling you before we started recording, my wife's been reading Hope for a Cool Pillow over the last month, and I've been looking up at her sometimes because she's either crying <laughs> or she's busily highlighting or marking pages or saying, Keith, you've got to talk to her about this. Keith, you've got to ask her that. And she, this book just blew her mind, and she made me start reading it a couple weeks ago. I said, I'm going to get to it. I'll get to it. But she said, you've got to read this book now. And I finished it actually this morning because I was – really taking my time, making a lot of notes. And Margaret, I have to say, 
I know you have an MFA in writing, so we know that you're a skilled writer, but this book is so well-written. It is so erudite. It is so sardonic and wry and funny and moving in, in tear producing. I just, my hat's off to you for an incredible book. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. It was, um, it, it was a really interesting, um, undertaking, um, to, to do this. <laughs> it right. was, it was, uh, it was a lot of uh, work and, you know, so many people say to me, well, wasn't this a cathartic experience? I'm like, mm, yeah, maybe the first draft was, but uh, number two through 20 were just work. <laughs> so. Two through 20? <laughs> oh, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. Well, whether there were 20 drafts or two drafts, Margaret, it's just, it is, I can't tell you how much I enjoyed it and how much I was moved by it. I've written so many quotes down in our document here because there's so many things to talk about. But I understood from the book that you were actually attending a conference, an ongoing conference on, I guess it was healthcare and medicine and business at the Harvard Business School. And this actually, in a strange way, came out of that experience, the writing of the book. But it also involves the illness and deaths of your parents and your relationships with them. So can you encapsulate a little bit what the driving force was and is behind the book. I know there were several, but what would you say? Um, so what happened was, uh, it, it was completely coincidental, but about a month after my mother died, I went to this course at uh, Harvard Business School, and it was an executive education course. It happened to last nine months. So I went on three separate occasions for one week each, um, and, uh, I was pretty overwhelmed by grief. My mom had had dementia for about the last six years of her life. And so she required quite a bit of care towards the end. And I was really close to her. I was the youngest out of four girls. So I went to, uh, this business school course, um, and the title of the course was Managing Healthcare Delivery. So I was very interested in learning about, um, you know, the problems with our nation's healthcare problems. And this was when, um, the Affordable Care Act was being debated in Congress. So it, I, I had this way of seeing all of the problems with healthcare through the prism of my mother's illness. And that aspect of things, end of life care, was pretty much what I focused on. Now, that wasn't what the course focused on, but that's how I saw things because I couldn't help but see that. I mean, that was really, it obsessed me. So, the entire course built up to a final project. And the final project was actually supposed to be a business plan. And, you know, I don't really ha have an, I didn't have a need for a business plan at that time. So um, when I was in Boston or in Cambridge the first time, um, about two days after I got there, I got 
an, um, an email from an agent who said she was interested in, in trying to publish my book, first book, my first memoir, uh, Good in a Crisis. So all of a sudden, I had this validation of myself as a writer, and I thought, well, this, this is the one thing I know how to do. I mean, besides anesthesia, right? And I thought, well, I guess my business plan will just be another book. And eventually, this I just started writing. And the more I wrote, um, it came about that it was an effort to create a storytelling tool to change end-of-life care. And I would say that I probably wrote and wrote and wrote for about uh, maybe even two years before I understood what I was actually trying to do. Mm. Well, you know, Margaret, I, I wanted to to jump in here as someone myself and, and sort of talking about the journey of your own family, your parents. And of course, I myself have had my mother in hospice in our own home. So I remember, um, my, so my company is a concierge healthcare company. We see patients in the home. We get them connected with hospice. So we kind of do a little bit of case management, case management and connection and really supporting patients and their families. So mm-hmm. I kind of figured, eh, I got this, no problem. But, right. but the one thing that I remembered was that, okay, I remember telling my staff, don't worry, I don't want you to have to try to help coordinate care for my mother. Like, I've got this. I kind of wanted to keep them out of that, you know, just mm-hmm. focused on the business itself. And, and I've got my mom. And, and it was interesting because you're talking about writing this book. And I think, you know, it was awful that I had to go through that to lose my mom at such a young age. Mm-hmm. However, for me, it was such an eye-opening experience to see it from that perspective because mm-hmm. I was always on the other side helping coordinate care. And I felt like, okay, I understand what's going on, but you really don't. No. I, well, I should say you really don't. I know that I didn't until I experienced it myself. And okay. the role confusion that you undergo, especially as a clinician, because mm-hmm. you think, oh, well, no, I can take care of that. And really kind of being able to pull back and say, oh, no, let me let hospice take care of this. You know, mm-hmm. what's covered, what supports they can provide, what they can't provide. So, I, again, it's unfortunate that, that we had to go, we, me, you, myself, and, and others out there that have had to go through that uh, struggle. But at the same time, it really was eye-opening for me. Mm-hmm. And so I don't, I don't, it sounds like that might be, that might have helped you with the impetus of this book, sort of the, not just the language, just the, 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 the tenor or the emotion of what was going on. Right. I completely agree with that. I, I think that, you know, we, we take so much for granted, um, you know, the way things should happen around patient care. Um, and, and what people actually want at the ends of their lives can be very different. And what we are used to providing in medicine is a very, um, is, is very kind of structured medical way of looking at end of life. But what people really often want is something entirely different. And I think that we in, in, in the medical field have really not given, paid enough attention to that. Um, that end of life is really about living and the end of their, their, their whole life instead of a medical process. And that's one of the things that I really learned I've also learned that um, this process have, has changed a lot in the last, 
you know, 20 years. My dad died in um, 1998. Um, and I recently lost a brother-in-law just um, six months ago. And I was with him the last few days of his life. And uh, hospice has changed enormously in the last 20 years. And, and, and in some way for the better in, in that um, resources are much more available now than they were 20 years ago or 18 years ago. But um, it's big business now. And the mission aspect of it is really not so apparent. The organization that my brother that my brother-in-law had hired um, was actually publicly traded, N- not just for profit, but publicly traded. And I have to tell you, <laughs> it was apparent in so many aspects of how they delivered care. It was really um, difficult, very difficult to deal with. Mm, right. And- well. Well, and I just wanted to to just I know that publicly traded piece that that must that must have been apparent. I can imagine because I know once you have your shareholders involved, there's a whole another animal um, right there. And also, too, I guess yeah, you can you can look at it from both sides, and you know it's like what side of the coin looks better to you. So you think, well, maybe it's a larger entity; they have more resources, they can mobilize people um, better. Uh, you get you know a deeper set of services versus maybe a smaller hospice organization but but to your point um it it, you can get into a situation where and we do we have some experience here in colorado where you can tell that there are some much larger entities it's not about deploying more people but there is that whole thing about the bottom line and like all this other like superfluous things that you're just like do we really need all that um Mm -hmm. you know so anyway i I just kind of wanted to to put that in perspective and thanks so much for teasing that piece out because i don't think a Mm -hmm. lot of people know that no, yeah, that is important, isn't it? It is really important. And one of the things that I've learned in, in the process of, um, <laughs> I was so appalled by, by my, exp- my recent experience that I kind of did a lot of research recently. And, and I, I realized that you have, to do, um, you have to do your homework now before you sign up with a hospice organization. You have to um, spend some time it used to be, you know, somebody made a recommendation, you know, your friend, your neighbor, your doctor, your whoever. And it was like, okay, you know, that sounds good to me. You didn't have a lot of options. But nowadays, you really do want to shop for a hospice. I mean, and, and that's, that's kind of surprising. And there aren't a lot of um, good indicators with which you can compare them. But you really do need to do some homework about this because there's some there there's some fraudulent organizations out there believe it or not but um (laughs) i i met a woman recently and she said to me um oh my mom is in hospice they're just wonderful she's in california and she's been in hospice for four years isn't that great and i thought no that's fraud Mm. yeah there's that's thanks for bringing that up, Margaret. Not necessarily the fraud part per se, but the notion of the commodification of hospice and the business models around hospice. Mm-hmm. I know a number of hospice nurses here in Santa Fe who actually have been on the show. There's um, Denise Cope who wrote a wonderful book about dying 
and then uh, Camille Adair, who's a nurse hospice leader and a filmmaker, a nurse filmmaker. Mm-hmm. And they talk about that commodification and the the loss of that piece, the humanity, when money gets involved, especially right. if it's a publicly traded company. And on page 168 of your book, there's a quote. It says, the profit motive remains a powerful and insidious reason to extend life at all costs without concern for quality for either patients or their families. I couldn't help but come to an important conclusion. Capitalism had ruined healthcare. But did capitalism ever belong in healthcare in the first place? It certainly does not belong in death and dying. And I was so moved by that passage and other passages as well. But you wrote a great deal about the business models around healthcare, especially hospice. You, there's a what I call a soliloquy on the business of healthcare on pages 108 to 110 that I think is just fantastic. It's much too long to read out loud right now. And also on page 166, you wrote about the study to understand prognoses and preferences for outcomes and risk of treatments, the support program. Mm -hmm. And you found that 50% of patients who were conscious at the end of life had moderate to severe pain at least half the time in the last three days of their lives. You also found that DNR orders were written two days before death, 46% of the time. And that only 47% of patients' physicians knew what their preference were with respect to a DNR. So if you put all of these pieces together, there's a disconnect and there's, there's something going on here in American healthcare that is somewhat disturbing when it comes to death and dying. Do, do you agree? Yes, I absolutely do. It, it's just not, there's not a lot of um, communication. Um, it's not in the best it has not been in the best interest of big medicine to um really communicate with patients about um how they want to die other than doing absolutely everything up until the end mm. i think that that's safe to say and and i think also you know physicians aren't really trained um to have the kinds of talks um, about end-of-life issues that, that they need to have. You know, and I think medical schools are, are trying to move more and more in this direction, but these are not skills that come naturally to physicians. These are not skills that, that schools necessarily, um, you know, are selecting for. You know, I mean, we, you do have to ask, you know, what patients' uh, directives are, um, but, but there, it's in a list of other things, you know, along with allergies and, and what your past medical history is. Right. And I think from medical training and even training in, in nursing uh, is that it's all about sort of getting through the, the pathophys of what's going on, you know, the real right. hard sciences. And not a lot is really paid attention to as maybe the quote unquote softer sciences mm-hmm. here. And, and I also think, I think to sort of parlay of what you're saying, I, I think it is very challenging to, at least in academia, to teach that. I think yes. it is something that you have to try to, you model it and then hopefully you can have someone follow that, build off that energy, see what that interaction is like. Because I think in, a, in an academic setting, that could be very challenging 
to say, you know, this is really important to really stress the importance because just like today, and it happens every time when we talk about end of life. Um, but also I, I have my experience as well in end of life and hospice. However, I, I just, I get so inspired and motivated to even want to level up to make sure that we are reaching uh, that point to where we're making sure that each individual uh, on the receiving end of our care is getting exactly what what they want, mm-hmm. what they want, what they need. I mean, right. obviously there's two pieces there, but obviously um, their desires are being met. And, and right. again, I just think it, it's hard to teach it black and white. It is very colorful and it does right. take some time. I agree. And, you know, I was, um, when, when I was growing up, we talked about death and end of life issues in my family all the time. And I, I thought it was normal. You know, <laughs> you always think your own family is normal, right? <laughs> we <laughs> do. <you> get- <laughs> yeah, I don't know. I'm not sure. I mean, yeah, anyway. You reach I a certain age and then you think, oh gosh, that wasn't normal at all. Right. My but- family's crazy. <laughs> right. But in my situation, I, it wasn't until I was a practicing physician and I started to see people at the end of life who had never had these discussions. And I realized that my family was really out of the ordinary. And I began to appreciate how different my parents had been in particular. And it's really interesting to me now looking back, I mean, now that both of them are gone, I don't know, I I mean, I think some cultures um, perhaps approach death differently. And I think certain families do. And I think certain individuals do, but I don't, I think it's hard to make any sweeping generalizations about ages or, or any group of people. I think some people approach it more easily than others. And I think that in some groups of families, uh, groups of individuals, it's easier to talk about it. Um, that's, so, that's so true, Margaret. And I wanted to say, in the course of the book, you paint a very, very clear and vivid picture of your father and the way that your father was so prepared for his death, especially in terms of making sure all his ducks were in a row, the T's were crossed, the I's were dotted, so that your mom would be taken care of if he died first, and so that you and your, your siblings wouldn't have to be running around figuring out what to do. Right. in case he was ill or after he died. And you go through quite a journey. I don't want to give it all away here, but you go through a journey of having some judgments about how your father approached the whole thing and then realizing in the end that you had some different feelings about how he'd approached it. And mm-hmm. it seems like in your relationship with your dad, you really learned a great deal from him and how he approached the whole thing and the way that he looked at it, not as a business decision so much, but in a kind of a cut and dry way. It was like he had his papers, you knew where they were, you knew what his plans were. (laughs) He kind of orchestrated the whole process, even when he was on hospice, which I think was beautiful. And the fact that you were a physician with a father in that type of position was very interesting and must have presented certain challenges to you as a daughter, being a doctor and a daughter. Yes, it absolutely did. He kind of hated doctors, actually. <laughs> I kind of, I got that. I got that. <laughs> and he, he had, um, he actually had an occupational physician who would come to his work 
that he liked better than anybody. <laughs> so mm. he would always tell me what that guy told him. Because <laughs> that guy was great. And, yeah, that, and, that guy was good. <laughs> right, and on page 92, you asked a very simple question. You said, where does the doctor end and the daughter begin? And Kevin's been there. I've been there. I hospiced my stepfather till his very last breath and been there for other family members and friends. So what do you say specifically to our listeners who are healthcare providers, because majority of them are nurses and healthcare providers. What do you say to those people who deal with this kind of stuff day in and day out in their careers for sometimes for decades, but then they're faced with their own mortality or the mortality and morbidity of their friends and family, especially their aging parents. So what do you say to them about this entire, this, the whole zeitgeist of the situation? How do you approach it? Um, I believe strongly that everybody has the right to choose what they want for themselves. And if that means, you know, going out, having every single, taking every pill, having every test, having every tube, every feeding, everything until the last possible day. That's their choice. And if it means getting a diagnosis and having nothing done, then that's their choice. And I think that in, the, in our profession, we tend to assume we know best. Or, and we tend to unduly influence people. I know I can speak for myself. I've been there and I've done that. Mm-hmm. Um, and the one thing I, I really learned the hard way with particularly my father, but my mother too, is that probably the best aspect of my education was not in telling them what to do or how to take care of themselves. It was that I knew how to give comfort. And I knew how to relieve pain. And sometimes that was with medication and sometimes it was just, you know, changing their sheets or holding their hand, you know, or turning the pillow over. Mm-hmm. I mean, I don't, I don't know that I really, I had anything specific to offer other than just my general caregiving. And, and I, really, I really believe that people have the right to self-determination in healthcare. But I think that they also have a right to make an informed choice. I think they have a responsibility to make an informed choice. And I think I try to make that point in the book, that people are really responsible for their own healthcare, that they're responsible for their own bodies. And I would like to see them empowered more by both the educational system, by the uh, healthcare system, by whatever, you know, uh, means are available so that they're more knowledgeable about their health, their well-being, their diseases, um, to make good choices for themselves, to make informed choices. Let me, well, I was just going to say, I need to try, I'm like, wait, I, I just need to commend you on what you're saying. It's, it is so open-minded here. And I think both from nursing, 
nursing and and medicine, so physicians and nurses. I think that there are plenty uh, out there who could still open their their hearts and their minds, their ears to what you're saying. Well, because you. I think, Margaret, one of the things that we that can be very hard to accept in medicine or you know healthcare in general is that because what you're saying is comfort. And I remember when I worked at Johns Hopkins in an ICU that it was very challenging oftentimes for the surgeon uh, because he or she felt like they were accepting defeat, mm-hmm. that the transition of end of life was not acceptable. It was not an acceptable medical outcome and that the families were holding on to what they were saying, like, no, I can fix this. No, I can fix this, except it was just above their capacity, pretty much anybody's capacity. And then it's like, okay, family, whomever that is, and, and or the patient, if the patient's able to articulate it, what is it that you do want? Because the outcomes here, as far as a, a transition of you walking out of this hospital uh, versus you know, end of life, and, and, and even walking out of this hospital, what we would have to do to get you there, is that really what you want? And, and we can't even really guarantee and probably a slim chance to guarantee that, that option that right. you're walking out of here. So what is it that you want? And I just want to echo that, um, th- that again, I think in healthcare, it, it just doesn't seem like a, an acceptable transition right. for most. Well, and you know, the thing is that you have to remember, everybody gets there. Everybody dies. You know, it, it, and you can almost, um, I think that there's one point in the book when um, I made the comment with my mom, um, if somebody had asked me, uh, will your mom be alive in a year, I would have said no, and I was right. You know, there, there's almost like this predictive thing that happens at some point, you know, in the last year. And, you know, we go back to this um, this. Uh, the statistic of the Medicare, you know, um, how much money is spent in the last year, uh, six months of life. I mean, we, we put so many of our resources into the last six months or year of life. And so many times it's apparent to everyone involved, including the patient, that this is, we're at the end. And and it's almost as though it's a, it's a conveyor belt. You know, you get yourself into the hospital and you get put on this conveyor belt. You can't say no. If you say no, then you're withdrawing support. And then there's some, like, active thing that you're doing and saying, oh, you know, I, I don't want that done. But there's, there's something so aggressive about saying, I'm not going to have this done. It's like an act of defiance against what you're talking about. Mm. And that's very difficult for medicine to deal with. One of um, the points that Atul Gawande makes in his book, Being Mortal, is that if we kind of reimagine um, the end of life as part of life instead of a medical event, then... We take ownership of that as part of our, uh, just a continuation of what's gone before. Instead of, you know, death being like this thing that has to be um, managed in a medical way. 
Do you know what I'm saying? Sure, sure. And overcoming it as a form and not seeing it as a form of defeat. Right. Almost like celebrating it as, as, as the culmination of something that was beautifully done. Right. Well, think about this, Margaret, and, and not to, I mean, to kind of, uh, shine sort of a, a bit of a humorous light on this because you think about it from a marketing standpoint. So let's say you're driving down the road and we see like all of these, you know, signs for this like hospital, you know, we'll provide you with the best care, uh, the best intervention, the best, you know, cardiothoracic, whatever, you know, nothing's, you know, from a marketing standpoint, they're never going to say, well, push comes to shove, you know, uh, we'll help you die in the most um, <laughs> comfortable <laughs> manner that we can possibly, you know, Oh, I mean, great selling point. Yeah, I mean, it, death <laughs> doesn't sell die. that way. So um, right. from a marketing standpoint, it just, it doesn't, it doesn't sound, it just doesn't ring well. Right. So, you know, but again, I, I think that's, I just wanted to take pause there because I, I just had this picture in my head when you were saying all these things like, <laughs> yeah, if somebody saw that on a billboard, they'd be like, I will never go there. Right. Like you know? a billboard for Hemlock Hospital or something. Like <laughs> exactly. That, you know, yeah. where, you know. <laughs> the place where Socrates came, you know, yeah, there's, <laughs> well, there's a mentality, there's the mentality that that facility or that institution or that mindset is giving up on you when yeah. really it, it isn't. It's actually still fighting for you, right. fighting for you at the very last breath to make sure that that transition is the very best. But again, a lot of people don't like to talk about it. It's true. And I just wanted to chime in here with something, Margaret and Kevin, that there's the cultural thing because here we are, we, the three of us are Caucasian people in the United States. You know, we're professionals uh, working in healthcare. So there's so many different cultural aspects to this. If we look at other countries, we're going to find very different approaches to death and dying, I'm assuming. Well, no, actually, I know there are different approaches in different countries and continents. And we look at the American obsession with youth, the American obsession with changing our bodies and making our bodies better and fighting against death and railing against death. You know, we could go on and on about that existentially. And there's a cultural conversation that does and doesn't happen. And Margaret, like you said earlier in the conversation, that those conversations are happening to some extent. You know, there's more conversation about death and dying in hospice, I think, than ever. Mm-hmm. You know, the hospice movement kind of got off the ground, I guess, in the 70s and kind of got its kind of got its teeth. You know, it got its footing right. and started making some inroads into the culture. But it's been a long, slow road to change the conversation. And apparently that conversation really needs to happen more in the medical schools. We do talk about it in nursing to some extent, but the physicians do drive those conversations, especially if they're leaning towards, let's fix that arm because that arm is, you know, there's something wrong, we can fix it, but let's not talk about the elephant in the room. Uh-huh. Yes, I agree with you there. Yeah. I think it's very difficult to, to um, it, 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 it does seem to be a national conversation though that is beginning to get larger and larger though. And, and with, the um, the recent passage of the uh, law in California um, mm-hmm. legalizing assisted suicide, I think what we're going to see is state by state um, real significant changes. You know, the the Supreme Court has kicked that back to the states. Um, I think on several different occasions, which it do- isn't to say that it, it can't go 
back and be challenged again at the Supreme Court level. But still, um, I, I think there will be huge changes in our lifetimes in that area. I should hope so. By the time I have to make some decisions, I'm 52 <laughs> now. I hope right. I can. Yeah. And, you know, Margaret, just in the course of this conversation, I want to bring up to our listeners, one is that they definitely need to go to your website, margaretoverton.com. That's O-V-E-R-T-O-N.com. I want to point them there into your Facebook page. And I want to say that in Hope for a Cool Pillow, which I have to read again and probably buy copies for other people I know and recommend it all over the place. But what I want to say is that as much as we're talking about death and dying here, and we're talking about these pretty heavy subjects, and some of our listeners might be thinking, hmm, let's get to some more humor. You know, what I want to say is that this book is peppered with so much humor. You are hilarious, and you have this wry sense of humor. There are, there are some, you know, kind of offbeat comments you make that just are funny because you're talking about buying depends in the store. And I think the person in the store thinks they're for you and offers you a paper bag. So no one will know. And you don't even bother telling him or her that, you know, it's actually for my mom. And on page 22, you say, I didn't bother to, it didn't bother me to buy depends in the grocery store. They're just large sanitary napkins with bad branding. So (laughs) those sorts of Those sorts of statements just really got me. I did laugh out loud a number of times, as did my wife. And she says hi, by the way. And thank you. I'll hide to her too. Sure. There was just, there's quite a bit of laughter. And when you're dealing with your dad, especially, I think there's there's this certain repartee between the two of you. Mm -hmm. And also your ability to write about some pretty heavy stuff with that twist of, of wry humor really makes the book, like my wife said, a page turner because there's, there's emotional depth. There's the story of your relationships with your siblings and your parents. There's your story of, you know, you mentioned your children, your daughter, you also talk about your work. And interestingly, I just want to ask as a writer or mention as a writer that in the course of a simple chapter, you go back and forth between, let's say, a patient who's fallen on the floor and is bleeding out. And then you flip back in the next scene to something about your mom or dad. And then you go back and forth. And some readers might find that disorienting. I found it fascinating because it kept me glued to the page for page after page. So in terms of just, I want to ask briefly your writing style, was that a very specific style decision to keep the reader kind of on the, on the edge of their seat? Well, yes. Uh, it, I don't know that it was on the. It was to do that so much. Well, as I was I, on the edge of my seat. <laughs> <laughs> well, I think that's the happy outcome. Um, okay. You know. Okay. So, uh, what I was trying to do was combine a personal story or a number of personal stories with facts, mm-hmm. and um, and and you know, get across this critical information, which is really dry by itself. Mm -hmm. Um, And I also think that sometimes personal stories about families can be a little self-indulgent. And so I didn't, I I wanted to combine the two. um, And I wanted to do it in a way that made you keep reading. And so... um, 
I experimented with a few different things. And actually, um, I, I kind of came upon that a little bit accidentally, <laughs> but mm. then I realized that it worked. So, but you did it masterfully, which well, is really incredible. <laughs> so my, my hat off again to you. I have kind of a short attention span, <laughs> so... Ah, so it was. Yeah, so there you have it. (laughs) Right. So let's do 60 seconds of mom and then back to the hemorrhaging patient, you know, the exsanguinating patient, and then back to mom. Yeah, right. Right. Do you have a passage you'd like to read? Do you have a little piece you'd like to share just so we can hear a little bit of the book in your voice? Well, I can, um, let's see, maybe I could start close to the beginning. Go Um, for it. All right. The wake was odd in the manner that wakes usually are, but nothing truly weird happened, not at the wake anyway. Nobody grabbed any dead body parts or fell to the floor in prostration. I've been at wakes where some distant relatives hauled the dead person up and out of the casket, hugged him, and carried on. I've attended wakes where the family hired a professional to wail. That was definitely awkward and personally discomfitting. My family, for certain, doesn't emote much. Our our funerals are civil affairs. The weeping is silent, mostly contained. But still, there we were, standing around a dead body in a casket, making polite small talk about this and that, and it was unnerving and, frankly, pretty damn exhausting, trying to pretend it was all just normal. Not too devastating, really. People I hadn't seen in ages, people I didn't even like, came by to say hello, or goodbye, as it were. Some hugs and kisses. I kept glancing over my shoulder at Mom. It would be my last day with her forever. I studied her profile surreptitiously in between visits with other mourners. What if I developed facial agnosia and forgot what she looked like when she was buried? How would pictures ever prove adequate? I wasn't ready for this, and yet she was more than ready. And she was so much more than her image, right? How could a two-dimensional figure evoke the full magnitude of the woman? I was glad to have that one extra day. I needed it. But what I really needed was the mom I'd had years before, when both she and her mind were present in the same room at the same time and we could all have meaningful conversation. That was the woman I wanted right here and now. I wanted her laughter and wisdom. I wanted her insight. But those were long gone. I think that's that's good for now. (laughs) (laughs) in the beginning of that passage, you know, what, what reminds me of, and I'm, I'm actually going to be attending uh, a funeral tomorrow, but uh, is that sometimes we, it, there's this sort of forced feeling of how you should behave mm-hmm. at one or, you know, the wake. And yet I love like when I've worked with people or known people personally who before they passed, they said, listen, when you, when you all get together, I do not want a bunch of, of weeping and blubbering and all of this stuff. And if there are <laughs> tears, those tears need to be preceded by laughter. You need to be laughing so hard that you're crying because, mm-hmm. you know, I'm okay with this. You know, I understand that, you know, for, for especially individuals who, who are aware that this is happening to them. Mm-hmm. And, and I think this, this rule to you know, behave in a certain manner at a wake, or or to beat back a feeling that you're like, oh no, I, I shouldn't think about that time that we had together, and then you break out in laughter, and then people look at you like, what is what is this idiot doing? Like you know, this person's you know gone, 
Mm -hmm. Um, But yet, I I think we all either mourn and or celebrate in our own way. Um, And and then especially if the person wants that, because I know my sister-in-law who had passed away about a year and a half ago, I know she didn't want people just kind of hanging around blubbering over her. Um, She wanted it to be a party, a celebration. Mm -hmm. What's really interesting about my mother's, uh, what was one of the really odd things for me, and I uh, was that I think it might have been the last, almost the last funeral I was at, but the, I mentioned this in the book, it was at Gibbons Funeral Home, and I grew up in Elmhurst, Illinois, and I must have been in hundreds of funerals in that same room. And so, you know, by the time my mom died, I, you know, I, I felt like it was my own living room. It, I mean, it was just, there's something deeply odd about that. You know, when mm. you just, I grew up in the town, I had been, you know, a Catholic and it was the, the Catholic uh, funeral home in town and it was a block from our church and just everybody I knew had had, had had their funeral out of that same room. So it was a little odd. <laughs> it, it is interesting and a, you're right, Margaret, and a, you know, a funeral home and a church too can feel like a home. It's a community center and if you've lived in a town for a long time, you go back again and again. And when I was working with patients in Springfield and Holyoke, Massachusetts, mostly in the Puerto Rican community, there were several funeral homes that serviced our client base, our patient mm-hmm. base. So I can't tell you how many funerals I went to at those particular funeral homes with mostly these very large, boisterous Puerto Rican families. And mm-hmm. That was a place that my colleagues and I found ourselves at again and again and again. (laughs) And it was comforting in some ways, and it was very interesting in other ways. And it was not our culture because most of us were were not from that community. Uh Um, We we weren't members of that community. We were kind of guests. So it was very interesting to be there. And I totally understand that notion that you were sharing about... (sighs) that funeral feeling. It's like, what am I supposed to be doing? And is it okay for me to be having these feelings? And is it okay for me to feel good about seeing mom laying there or whatever it is, you know? And I remember when my mom died of a massive hemorrhage and I got down to the hospital in Atlanta and I made the decision for us to turn off the life support because she was brain dead. And Mm -hmm. the next morning, my wife and my sister and my brother and I went over to the funeral home and we got to see her before she'd been made up. Mm-hmm. We got to see her and touch her hand and she was a very accomplished classical pianist and this this ability to look at her face and touch her face and hold her hand um was just so moving and mm-hmm. as much it was that was as moving as the huge funeral we had where people played music for several hours. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we all have to have our own experience of our loved one's deaths. And of course, funerals are more for the living than for the dead. The dead are already moved on wherever they are, wherever they've wanted to go. But we all have to have that singular experience of mourning our dead in whatever way is appropriate. And your book in many ways, what it does for me is it reinforces for me that notion that one, that we're, we're allowed, we have the right to die in the way we want to die. We have a right to orchestrate it to the best of our ability. 
And our loved ones have the right to also help us do that. And it's just a beautiful message. And I really want to thank you for, for putting it in words that are moving, but also entertaining and, and, and sometimes funny at the same time. Well, thank you very much. I really appreciate it. And I have enjoyed talking to both of you. <laughs> oh, you're welcome. And um, Kevin, do you have any last words for Margaret before we, we say goodbye? Well, and I, I think that I just wanted to stress, you know, I think we did uh, share quite a bit of humor today. And, and I do love that humorous side because, again, I think it, it helps us relate to that and, and almost like tell us that it's okay to have those feelings. Because to your point about the the depends, you know, bagging those up. <laughs> right. My my mother in law um, right now she she's going through a very similar situation. She's not in hospice, but um, I'm I'm probably the point person here uh, in Colorado because I guess I am a nurse, and my wife is so far from being a nurse that she just <laughs> is like I, I don't know. So you know, I walk in the store all the time, and I grab and you know we call them undergarments, and I know that. I'll oftentimes they're like, sir, would you like me to put that in a bag for you? And I'm like, no, no, I got this. And you know, I walk out like, you know, right. I can walk out with like right. my Starbucks coffee in one hand and then, you know, the, 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 the depends <laughs> under my arm. I'm like, I'm rocking it. You know, I'm good. <laughs> I am good here. I don't, you know, I don't need to play cool. This is cool. Right. So. Right. And Kev, you look good. You look great in those undergarments. Exactly. Right. Exactly. Those, that'll be on Instagram any day now. Yeah. So I, again, maybe your book, I, I think maybe your book is also a way to give, if anybody is seeking permission, uh, but to have very similar feelings like that and, and find the humor in these situations. Because quite frankly, uh, I don't think it, it, it is, it's toxic to think any, you know, that, that some of this isn't humorous. I mean, it really, or that it is humor. I mean, it is, it can be quite funny at times. And I, and I think back on my mom's hospice experience and there were times where I just had to throw my arms up and think, oh my gosh, this is like, you know, what else could possibly happen here when, you know, when she was still here. And Uh at one point she just wasn't lucid at all. Um, you know, my wife's looking at me and I just, uh, she's talking to me in like gibberish and, and all these things. And I'm just like, wow, you know, and I, I was basically having a conversation with her. The words out of her mouth were definitely, she thought, I'm sure in her mind she was articulating, but, but they weren't coming out the way she probably thought they were. And so we were having a conversation, but it was, you know, it was like, you know, monkeys on the sofa and, you know, on the moon, this and, the, you know, whatever. And it's like, yeah. And so we just kind of had a nice little chat. You know, that was probably right. one of Kevin, our last chats that we had. Right. And yeah. you were present for her. And I think, part, Margaret, part of what you get across in your book is that notion of being present. Mm-hmm. Right. I, that just seems so important. Yeah. Yeah. So if yeah. anybody, I think, is is looking for, again, permission that this is this is an OK transition, it, it is. And I think everybody's going to have their own experiences, but, but to embrace every piece of the, you know, all the emotions that, that you're going through uh, in this process. So I'm just thankful to have you on the show, Margaret, and to talk more about this, because I don't think we talk enough about it. So I'm glad we actually had a chance. Well, thank you very much. And I've really enjoyed our chat. Great. Well, thank you, Margaret. We'll be in touch soon. And okay. we encourage people to go to margaretoverton.com and check out the books, um, Hope for a Cool Pillow as well as good in a crisis. So Margaret, thank you again. Thank you. Have a good day. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Wow. So that show was actually, it was fun. And I know that uh, the tone of the show was, I I love the tone of the show. And you'd think, well, talking about that type of, you know, subject matter, 
wouldn't seem fun, but it, but it really is actually eye-opening and looking at things through a different lens, another perspective. And of course, connecting with someone else out there, Margaret Overton, of course, connecting with her on that level that you know she has gone through it, I have gone through it, so has Keith. And I'm sure some of you have as well. And you know, if there's anything that you want to share, just anything uh, on this uh, particular episode, definitely hit us up at rnfmradio.com forward slash episode 199. And you can, of course, follow Margaret over at margaretoverton.com. Now, don't worry, we'll have all of that in the podcast app. So if you're listening on your mobile device, don't worry, we'll have the link within that. You can head over there or uh, obviously it'll be on the show notes at, at rnfmradio.com and hope for a cool pillow. So all of that will be over there. We will, You'll have access to it. So definitely head over there to find that one for Margaret. And Margaret, I just want to say thank you. And again, one more time, just to let you know, this is episode 199. So 200 is coming and it will be launching this Friday, May 6th, 2016. And uh, if it's not too late, if you got a couple more days, well, you can always leave us messages at SpeakPipe, and we would love to bring those on the air. But for sure, rnfmradio.com, go over to the Contact Us page, hit the SpeakPipe app if you want to leave us a voice message for episode 200. So that'll be launching earlier uh, than it does normally because we want to hit Nurses Week off you know, right. And then we've also got another bonus episode that we think you're also going to love. Anyway, speaking of love, let's just get out of here because we appreciate your time and attention. And with that time, we also know that that is a gift that you're giving to us. So we're going to give that back to you by, of course, me just zipping it and and getting out of here. So go ahead and just find your passion, execute on those ideas, rinse and repeat. And we'll see you back here with us again on our next episode 200 of RNFM Radio. Radio.